At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. For nearly a century in the 1700s, there was an uneasy truce among medical scientists in Great Britain. To make any progress, they needed to dissect the human body and study its anatomy. But societal taboos prevented people from donating their bodies to medical schools. So given the shortage of bodies for dissection, British anatomists, as well as their counterparts in North America, felt that they had no choice but to rob graves. Some scientists did the deed themselves, while others enlisted students to help. Regardless, government officials tended to look the other way at grave robbing for two main reasons. First, most government officials were rich and powerful. Most bodies for dissection, meanwhile, came from the pauper classes. Officials could therefore tolerate grave robbing without the fear of their own loved ones going missing. Less cynically, Authorities also knew that budding doctors and surgeons needed bodies to train on, and, frankly, to make mistakes on. Otherwise, these newbie doctors would be learning anatomy on the fly inside living patients, making mistakes while elbow deep inside their guts. Many government officials wanted to legalize dissection for this reason, but popular opinion prevented it. As a result, the British medical community fell into an uneasy truce when it came to procuring bodies. Don't ask. Don't tell. What finally broke the equilibrium was the obsession of one man, John Hunter. Hunter was coarse and foul-mouthed, with hair so red you could light a cigar with it. He was the tenth of tenth children in his Scottish family, and he went into medicine in part because six of his siblings died young from disease. In 1748, at age 20, Hunter moved to London to become the assistant director for a doctor there. He had never cut into a body before that. But after the rush of that first incision, he basically never stopped. There's no question that Hunter pushed the science of anatomy to unprecedented heights. But if he was revered for his discoveries, Hunter was also reviled for his methods. There was one case in particular when Hunter stole the body of an Irish giant that has made his name ring with infamy down to the present day. From the Science History Institute, this is Sam Keen and the Disappearing Spoon, a topsy-turvy, sciency history podcast, where footnotes become the real story.
Medicine in the mid-1700s paid lip service to scientific ideals like observation and experiment. But everyday treatment still consisted of ineffective, age-old nostrums. Things like purging through vomiting, letting blood with leeches, and tobacco enemas. Literally blowing smoke up someone's ass. John Hunter wanted to modernize medicine, and he saw anatomy as the foundation of reform. To cure disease, doctors needed intimate knowledge of the body. And this included not just how the parts fit together, but the feel and the smell and even the taste of different body parts. Hunter once described the gastric juices of cadavers as, quote, saltish or brackish. More daringly, he reported that, quote, semen, when held some time in the mouth, produces a warmth similar to spices. Hunter even dissected and tasted an Egyptian mummy once. Whether in spite of, or even because of his unorthodox methods, Hunter made dozens of anatomical discoveries. These included the tear ducts in the eye and the olfactory nerve. He oversaw the first artificial insemination in humans and pioneered the use of electricity to jumpstart the heart. He also charted the development of babies in utero, and he divined the modern classification of teeth into incisors, cuspids, bicuspids, and molars. Based on such work, Hunter was elected to the famous Royal Society in 1767. Moreover, his practiced cutting hand and intimate knowledge of anatomy made him a celebrated surgeon. He eventually bought a house in London with a grand facade for receiving distinguished patients. These included Adam Smith, David Hume, William Pitt, and Joseph Haydn. Still, Hunter had his critics, especially for his dealings with grave robbers. Most anatomists despise these so-called resurrectionists and sack em up men. They were lowbrow thugs, but a necessary evil. In contrast, Hunter's vulgar manners actually made him a great favorite with grave robbers. He liked their company, and they liked him. Hunter's majestic house even had a second, less wholesome back entrance just for the resurrectionists. It overlooked an alley. And at 2 a.m., they would sneak up and unload that night's catch. As one student remembered, the rooms back there were distinctly perfumed with the scent of corpses. Robert Louis Stevenson used this Janus-faced house, and Hunter's life in general, as models for his novel Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Grave robbers usually worked in teams. Less sophisticated crews would poach from mass graves, the open pits that were left unattended until they'd been filled with paupers' bodies. The best crews had more elaborate setups. Many of these crews employed female spies, who attracted less attention. The women would linger near hospitals and workhouses waiting for people to die. The spies would then attend the funeral and follow the wake to the graveyard to notice the location of the plot. These spies also kept an eye out for booby traps, such as spring-loaded rifles buried in the dirt, or torpedo coffins that exploded if tampered with. Less drastically, some families would arrange twigs, or stones, or oyster shells into a pattern on the surface of the plot. That way they could tell if the dirt had been disturbed. These lady spies passed all this information onto the gangs for a cut of the proceeds. The actual resurrecting took place at night, Sack-em-up men had to become amateur astronomers, in fact, and chart the rising and phases of the moon to determine the best time to go out in the dark. Graveyard guards were a little worried. 
If a graveyard even had one, the gangs either bribed him or got him so drunk that he passed out. Then the thieves would tiptoe up to the fresh grave, disable any booby traps, memorize the pattern of sticks or shells, and start digging with their soft, quiet wooden shovels. The gangs rarely disinterred a whole coffin. That was too much work. Rather, they would expose just the head of it. Then they would jigger a crowbar underneath the lid and use the weight of the overlying dirt to snap the boards. A rope slipped under the arms of the body, then retrieved the prize. The real pros could empty a grave in 15 minutes flat, and they were veritable Picassos when it came to recreating the look of an undisturbed plot. More than one gang snuck into a churchyard and started digging, only to find an empty grave below. The work of a more punctual rival. Gangs earned flat fees for adult bodies, around two pounds sterling silver in Hunter's Day. That's roughly what farm laborers made in a whole season. For rare specimens, like pregnant women during their last months, prices might rise to 20 pounds, $2,500 today. However lucrative, though, the work did have its dangers. If they were caught, resurrectionists risked jail time or transport to the colonies. And while the police often looked the other way, mobs did not. Grave robbers regularly got beaten, shot, or whipped with metal wires. One horde that had a keen sense of irony actually tried burying a grave robber alive in the pit that he had just dug. Some anatomists acted like godfathers and looked after their most reliable resurrectionists, bailing them out of jail or providing for their families during stints in prison. But if an anatomist double-crossed them or even bought bodies from a rival crew, the gangs had no compunctions about breaking into labs and hacking the bodies up rendering them useless for dissections. It was straight mafia tactics. Pretty little corpse you got there. It'd be a shame if something happened to it. John Hunter, however, rarely ran afoul of the resurrectionists, mostly because he could not afford to. All his research depended on them. Later in life, he estimated that, during his first dozen years of work in London, he either dissected or observed the dissection of 2,000 corpses one body every two days. Given that nearly every one of those bodies had been stolen, this seems bad enough. But month by month, corpse by corpse, Hunter also developed a moral callus. And pretty soon these former human beings became nothing but bags of bones to him. Probably the most disgraceful episode involved the Irish giant Charles Byrne. Have you ever wanted to appreciate books or movies or music from another culture? Do you have a big trip coming up and want to get beyond the tourist spots and immerse yourself in local culture? No matter what the reason, Rosetta Stone is the language program for you. Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning for 30 years. Millions have used it. Rosetta Stone knows what works for getting started, remembering what you've learned, and motivating you to stay on track. Plus, the built-in True Accent feature gives you live feedback to improve your pronunciation. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. So don't put off learning that language. Start today. For a limited time, Disappearing Spoon listeners get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. 
That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. According to the tabloids, Byrne stood eight feet, four inches tall. So tall that people swore he could light his pipe from the gas street lamps on the sides of the roads without even rising onto his tiptoes. Scholars at the time ascribed his fantastic height to his parents having sex atop a haystack. Modern doctors have a different theory, that Byrne had a pituitary tumor that pumped out excess growth hormones. To earn a living, Byrne would exhibit himself in county fairs across Ireland and England. He wore gigantic shirts with frilled cuffs and a three-cornered hat the size of a topsail. He had an audience with King George once, and the moment John Hunter laid eyes on Byrne, he grew obsessed with dissecting him. Hunter therefore approached Byrne one day in London and offered to buy his corpse pre-posthumously. To Hunter, the offer was an honor. Who wouldn't want to be dissected by the world's leading anatomist? But Hunter's obsession had blinded him to the fact that most people considered dissection an abomination, and Byrne practically shrieked at the offer. After sending Hunter away, the giant gathered his friends and made them swear to God above that they would dump his body in the sea when he died and keep it out of the anatomist's clutches. Sadly for Byrne, death came sooner than he expected. Pituitary conditions can cause arthritis and bad headaches, and Byrne reportedly started drinking to blot out the pain. Hunter learned all this through a spy he'd employed to tail the giant from pub to pub. It would have taken prodigious amounts of booze to get Byrne drunk each night, and his liver eventually sputtered out. He drank himself to death in June 1783, just 22 years old. As one newspaper reported, anatomists began circling Byrne's house, just as Greenland harpooners would an enormous whale. Byrne's friend ordered a coffin the size of a schooner for him. And, figuring that Byrne had exhibited himself when alive, his friends decided to put him on display in death and make a quick buck by selling tickets. Friends like these, huh? But, true to their word, no one got Burns' body. After four days of cashing in with tickets, the friends and an undertaker began a 75-mile march to the sea to fulfill Burns' last wishes. Unfortunately, the mourners had more in the way of good intentions than good sense. Lugging a giant coffin around was hard, sweaty work in the June heat. So the Irish lads began stopping every few miles to refresh themselves with ale and toast their departed friend. Being responsible fellows, they always tried to bring the coffin inside the tavern with them to watch over it. Or, those times when it didn't fit inside, they made arrangements to keep it safe. For instance, at one tavern, the doorway was too narrow for Burns' coffin. 
so they took the suggestion of the undertaker and stored it in a nearby barn that he knew of. Eventually, this nomadic wake reached the coast past Canterbury, where the friends hired a local oarsman and rowed out to the deep. There, they pushed the coffin of the Irish giant off the prow and watched it sink to the bottom of the sea. But if that's what happened to the coffin, the Irish giant's body, meanwhile, was already back in London, in John Hunter's house. You see, before the wake had set off, Hunter's spy had approached the undertaker on the trip. The spy offered a 50-pound bribe for his cooperation. The undertaker was canny, though. Sensing desperation, he drove that offer up to an incredible 500 pounds. That's $50,000 today. Hunter could not afford that price, but his mania got the better of him, and he agreed. On the march to the sea, the undertaker then steered Burns's friends to the tavern I mentioned above with the narrow door. He knew that the coffin would never fit, but he also knew about the barn, and he'd already bribed the owner of the barn to let him hide some tools and men among the straw inside. So while Burns's friends made merry, the undertaker's secret crew unscrewed the lid, hid the giant's body in the straw, and replaced him with a precisely measured weight of stones. Afterward, the coffin went one direction, the body another. By dawn the next morning, Hunter was dragging the giant through the Mr. Hyde entrance of his home. Strangely enough, Hunter never ended up dissecting Byrne. If he had, his trained eye might have spotted the pituitary tumor and connected it to gigantism. That was a link that would remain undiscovered for another century. But Hunter was scared enough of Burns' friends to abandon his dissection plans. Instead, Hunter focused on boiling the body down to preserve the skeleton. Hunter used a huge copper vat to do so, skimming off the fat like so much soup and picking out the giant's bones. Hunter eventually opened up a museum of anatomical oddities in London, where the 7-foot, seven 7-inch seven skeleton served as the centerpiece. One writer called it Hunter's Collection of Human Miseries. And against the giant's wishes, it's still on display today. Overall, John Hunter left two conflicting legacies. There's no question he was one of the great scientists of his day, making dozens of new discoveries about how our bodies work. And beyond any specific findings, he inaugurated a new spirit in medicine, dragging it out of the realm of bloodletting and tobacco enemas and emphasizing observation and experiment. This was a big step toward scientific respectability. That said, Hunter's lack of ethics gravely undermined his reputation. Condemning scientists in the past for not living up to today's moral standards is unfair on some level. But even in his own day, people despised Hunter, both rich and poor alike. And even Hunter's fellow anatomists, who were robbing graves themselves, even they blanched when he stole Charles Burns' body. Hunter is a classic example of someone rationalizing his sins by pointing out all the good that resulted, as if ethics was merely moral accounting, with the good deeds canceling out the bad. This is the Disappearing Spoon Podcast, brought to you by the Science History Institute. Find out more about their library, museum, and multimedia magazine at sciencehistory.org. 
Make sure you check out the Science History Institute's other awesome podcast, Distillations. You can find their in-depth narrative stories and interviews about everything from space junk to sex, drugs, and migraines anywhere you get your podcast and on their website, distillations.org. You can find more incredible stories from my books at samkeen.com. You can also book me as a speaker at your school or event. If you like this podcast, please support it at patreon.com slash disappearingspoon. It costs as little as seven cents per day. You can also get bonus episodes and signed books. Please spread the word to others as well and subscribe in iTunes, Stitcher, or other places. This episode was written by me, Sam Keen. It was mixed by Jonathan Pfeffer and produced by Mariel Carr, Rigoberto Hernandez, and Padmini Raghunath. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.